Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Jesus, thank you that you've never lost a battle. Yes, amen. Never. never, ever, ever lost a battle. Lord, may each of us go from here knowing in our hearts, our minds and our lives that you've never lost a battle, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that, that we can lay our burdens at your feet and you take them. Thank you, Lord. I just give you thanks. So today we're going to we're going to consider how Jesus won the battle. Yeah, amen. Yeah, many years ago, <clears throat> I remember watching a bit of daytime TV. Not something that I would recommend. Um, if you want to avoid depression, don't watch daytime, you know, TV. Um, but anyway, I was watching daytime TV. I don't know how I managed to be in that place, but I was. And um, there were it was it was Richard and Judy. I was watching, you know, the kind of um, the, those kind of hosts and. The context, as I remember it, that they were talking about was that there'd been some gang violence in London. And then on the back of this gang violence in London, Judy was um, talking about somebody who had created some jewellery and had kind of guns on the jewellery. And she was and she was kind of waxing lyrical and outraged about this jewellery, how tasteless it was having a gun, an instrument of violence as a piece of jewellery. And without any hint of irony, she was wearing a cross around her neck. Interesting. Another story, someone was telling me a while ago about being in a jeweler's shop and overhearing another customer buying a cross necklace and said, and the person she overheard saying, I'll have the one with the little man on it. Hmm. Where did we get, how did we get to where we are in this nation? I mean, really, you know, the one with the little man on it. I've been asking the Lord this, particularly since returning from Brazil, how as a culture we've got to where we are. And indeed how to get back from where we are. Because as a nation, I think we stand on the edge of a precipice, you know, 100,000 marching for Palestine yesterday in central London. Yeah. You don't have to look very far to find brokenness and trouble in our nation. So how do we get to a place where we're not on the edge of a precipice? And in the meantime, how do we minister to people from the edge of a precipice? I think we'd all agree that we need a mighty move of God in our nation, right? There is only one way that this nation is going to be changed, and that is when people come to know Jesus. You know, it's easy to pray, Lord, please move, please move, please move, please move on our nation. But I think the Lord is more aware of it than we are, the need. So what's the key to a move of God in our nation? 2 Chronicles 7.14, we all know it. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So what's going to bring a mighty move of God onto this nation in this generation? Humbling ourselves, praying, seeking his face as we were today and turning from our own wicked ways. Humility is the key to breakthrough. It's the first step which leads us into praying, seeking his face, and turning from our wicked ways. It's what enables us to draw close to Jesus, to accept all he's done for us and all that he has for us. I believe that humility is the key to releasing the power of Jesus over this land. We have a calling, you and I, CCF, 
and every, every church in this nation to bring Jesus to our land in power. And we need the power, but we only get the power through following him, following his way, not our way. We may have all sorts of ideas about how to evangelize our nation, but the only ideas we need are his ideas. You know, the other day I decided to hoover the bathroom. Um, <coughs> Philippa was probably quite pleased about that. Um, so I was hoovering away, like we've got one of those Henry Hoovers, you know, where you've got a cylinder and then you've got a kind of, you've got the, um, the hose. And I was hoovering away busily, like hoovering away, hoovering away, hoovering away. And then, so I didn't notice at first, but what I realized was the hoover wasn't picking up. I carried on a bit, a bit longer. And then I looked around and realized what the problem was. The hoover pipe had become detached from the hoover, you know. So I looked as if I was being effective. You know, I, I even felt as if I was being effective for a while, you know. But in reality, without the pipe being attached to the hoover, I was completely ineffective. I was just brushing dirt around the floor. Um, and as I did this, as I realized this, the Holy Spirit immediately applied it to this lesson of my hoovering to the church in this nation. Much of the church is power, powerless because we've lost connection to the source. You know, we've lost connection. There we are, busily plugging away, feeling like we're making a difference, like I was, um, putting, up some, putting some passion and enthusiasm into things, but with what effect? You know, up and down the country, there are quite a few Christians who go to a lot of churches who hear lots of stimulating sermons, well-constructed arguments, but somehow too often to little effect, and we may feel the same sometimes, particularly when we come to evangelize. And if we feel this, we're not the first. Actually, I think there's a specific time in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul has a similar realization, okay? And it's an interesting one. Do you remember the sermon on Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17? Remember the scene, Paul finds himself, his spirit grieved by the fact that, there, this, that he's in a city full of idols. So he goes to Mars Hill to the Areopagus and he preaches to the Athenians about the unknown God. You know that sermon? Yeah, look at it closely. He refutes their idols. He tells them to turn to God and repent. He ends up by preaching about the resurrection from the dead and the coming judgment. And I've heard quite a few. I remember in, in, in um, lockdown, I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of Christian head teachers and deputy head teachers from all across Europe. And somebody was talking about this passage and he was saying this is the model of, of a good sermon to unbelievers this is the model of it you know I've heard lots of intelligent people tell me that sort of thing or, or say hold up this sermon as a model sermon to emulate but before we emulate it let's look at the fruit of this sermon let's think about it it says some people mocked him quite a few people joined him verse 34 of Acts 17 says some men joined him and believed among them were Dionysus of the council of the Areopagus and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The result of Paul's preaching in Athens was actually a few people turning to Jesus. Why? I believe we find the answer as Paul goes to his, continues his missionary journey and goes to Corinth. The next verse, chapter 18, verse 1 says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. We know that Paul's time in Corinth was much more fruitful than Athens. We know he was there for longer, of, of course, as well. But if we look at the conditions in Corinth compared to Athens, they're fairly similar. Think about it. Both were cosmopolitan Greek cities. In both places, therefore, Greek thinking was dominant. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Greeks pursue wisdom and philosophy. 
Both places were full of idols. Apparently, Corinth had at least 12 temples, uh, including the Temple of Aphrodite, and that had um, over a thousand shrine prostitutes. So no less um, idolatry going on in Corinth than Athens, right? Both were commercially important, Corinth probably even more so than Athens. So what was the difference to, for Paul as he went to Corinth? The difference was that Paul had complete clarity of how to the evangelize to the Corinthians. And he tells us the difference in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 2, 1 to 5. And this is from the NIV. I'm going to read this one. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So what's the difference between Paul preaching in Corinth to how he preached at Mars Hill in Athens? In Athens, Paul attacked the idols that the Athenians believed in and tried to present Jesus in a way the Athenians could grasp, eloquently talking about the gospel and ending focusing on the resurrection. But interestingly, he makes no mention in that sermon of the cross. In Corinth, Paul changes tack. He says, I did not come with lofty words of eloquence or, or of philosophy as a Greek orator might do. That's the amplified translation. Instead, Paul said, I made the decision to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. So Paul once again makes the cross central to his message. The message of Jesus is the message of the cross and the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, not with clever and eloquent words, so that the cross of Christ would not be ineffective, deprived of its saving power. I wonder if we've become distracted from the raw power of the cross. I mean, I wonder, what does Paul even mean by the power of the cross? I mean, have we, have we read the crucifixion narrative so often we've stopped looking to the cross? We've just become familiar. Have we become so used to the cross that our attitudes are more like Richard and Judy's than we'd like to admit? The cross becoming a clean and sanitized place in our minds, nice and safe, a, piece of simp a simple piece of jewelry. We were thinking about what the cross cost Jesus, yeah? What was the magnitude of God's love that he showed for us on the cross? Let's turn back to the first century and think about the crucifixion. Although Jesus' crucifixion is recounted in each of the Gospels, none of them go into full detail about what the crucifixion entailed. They don't need to, because the audience that they were writing for was familiar with crucifixion. The first century Jewish historian Josephus calls crucifixion the worst of deaths. Another historian from the time calls it the punishment of slaves. Crucifixion was the most humiliating, horrific, and horrible death the most cruel death, the most savage death, and the most bitter death. Indeed, the Romans used crucifixion as a form of humiliation, making a public spectacle of those who were crucified. It was all about shaming. As historian Tom Holland says, in Roman thinking, to be shamed was almost as bad to be as being tortured. Crucifixion was both the worst form of torture and the most shaming. And this is the death that Jesus himself went through. The crucifixion was fully real. 
you know, in our Western thinking, we're very influenced by the Greeks, particularly Plato's thinking and the separation of the spiritual from the physical. The early church struggled with this same issue in, in, in the kind of Gnostics who presented spiritual reality being separate from physical bodily reality. When I say that the crucifixion is real, what I mean is that the crucifixion of Jesus was simultaneously a physical reality and a spiritual transaction bound inextricably together. This was more than just a historical event. This was a crescendo of human history, the fulfillment of God's own plan to reconcile humanity to God. So as Jesus went to the cross, he did so to bring us to God and to bring heaven to earth. Once we've been reconciled to God as sons and daughters of him, we get to bring reconciliation through him into every situation, every circumstance. Anointing requires alignment with him. Today I want to talk about two aspects of the cross. First, what we've been saved from, briefly, and second, what we've been saved for. We've been saved from shame, fear, and condemnation. I want to pick up on this point about shame. I'm not going to pick up on every detail of the crucifixion because it would be even longer than David's sermons if I did, right? <laughs> I reckon I'd be here all day <laughs> and only just beginning. Yeah, yeah, no. no, it's good, it's good. <laughs> it's good. I might still be longer, right? <laughs> but I would, I would encourage each of us to look over the, the passion narrative again and think about it freshly. You know, but I do. I, I want to start with considering. I'm going to only consider about three different things of Jesus of the Passion narrative. I want to consider first the dividing of Jesus' clothing. Okay, Psalm 22:18. It says, "They divide my clothing among them and cast lots for my garment." John 19:23-24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer clothes. and made four parts, a part for each soldier, and also the tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top throughout. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but, it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it will be. Jesus wore five pieces of clothing. The soldiers took, each, took one each, and then they cast lots for the final piece, the undergarment. So this was a fulfillment of that prophecy in Psalm 22. But it also, also has stark implications that we may not be fully thinking about or aware of. It's hard to think about this. We want to dignify our precious Saviour. But Jesus Christ was actually crucified completely naked. You know, medieval artists have often veiled him with a loincloth. It's hard to look at our Saviour naked on the cross. To unveil him in such a manner, we'd want to look away. Though even this itself is prophesied, Isaiah 53.3, he was like one from whom men hide their faces. We don't like to see our saviour demeaned. We don't like to see the humili humiliation he faced, but it's all there. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and pain and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not appreciate his worth or esteem him. Matthew 27, 39. Those who passed by were hurling abuse at him and jeering at him, wagging their heads in scorn and ridicule. But we must look at the unveiled Jesus to consider the depths of the humiliation that he faced. There is nothing about the crucifixion that's safe or clean or respectable or nice. Nothing. 
that Jesus could willingly and obediently suffer such anguish, such agony, such humiliation, was the very plan of God. Philippians 2, 2, sorry, Philippians 2, 7 to 8. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a bondservant and made, being made in likeness of men. After he was found in outward appearance as a man, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had to die the death of a slave to carry the whole weight of humanity's sin, shame, guilt, and condemnation on the cross. Every part of it. This is how he won the battle, right? This is how he won the battle. Covering up Jesus' nakedness as a result of our own embarrassment or discomfort, that's why we do it. It makes us uncomfortable that Jesus would be so shamed for our sin. That the Christ, God's son, would die a criminal's death is still incomprehensible for many, as it was for many Greeks in the time of Paul. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a message which to the Jews is, is to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, just utter nonsense. There's an example of this. It's, the actual, it's actually the, the earliest visual representation we have of the crucifixion. It comes from about 200 AD and it's in Rome and it presents this very Gentile view of the foolishness of the cross. It's called the Alexa Menos Graffiti. And it's a drawing of a man worshipping Jesus on the cross. But in the drawing, Jesus has a donkey's head. And the text written by it states, Alexamenos worships his God. Insulting. Yeah? Blasphemous. Yeah. But here's the power of it, right? Jesus took all of these insults on himself at the cross. And he prayed for those who crucified him to be forgiven. There's only one way to accept Jesus, and that's by faith with humility. As Jesus was humbled on the cross, so humility is the only way to enter his kingdom. Accepting his redemptive sacrifice is the only way to be forgiven of our sin and our shame. And it's this humility that enables us to leave our burdens with Jesus. If you've still got a burden, maybe you need to get a little bit more humility. That's what he's, he's kind of thinking. In his nakedness, Jesus took all of our shame from us. You know, Jesus, the second Adam, restores the state of Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, where it says, Genesis 2.25, before the fall, that they were naked and felt no shame. The dictionary des describes shame as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Shame is a human condition without God. It's the result of sin. In the Garden of Eden, after the fall, Adam... Adam says to God, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear comes from thinking our shame will be revealed and we'll be, sh and we'll be shamed. Our sin will be revealed and we'll be shamed. So we try and cover up sin. We try to disguise it. We downplay it. We, we clothe it with self-righteousness. You know, we try and close up, clothe ourselves with self-righteousness. The last thing we want as human beings is for people to find us out, to see who we really are. We'd rather never think about or dwell on these things, let alone bring them into the daylight or be seen by others. There are things that we would rather undo or delete, but we can't. And this brings us into a place of the fear of God's punishment, knowing that we don't measure up to the perfect God. But that's why Jesus has taken it all. Brothers and sisters, we are, we are set free. We're completely set free from shame. Completely. By Jesus. 
Isaiah 53:11 says, My servant shall justify the many, making them upright before God in right standing with him, for he shall bear the responsibility for their sins. And the results of Jesus' sin offering are described in the next chapter, Isaiah 54, 4. Do not fear, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And you will no longer remember the disgrace of your widowhood. For your husband is your maker, the Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Notice Isaiah's linking of fear to shame. Do not fear, for you will not be put to shame. As followers of Jesus, our shame has been completely taken away, which means that we don't need to have any fear either. Jesus took our shame. I don't believe anything that I've shared this morning so far is news for any of us. Maybe nothing I share today will be news for any of us. But it, the reality is that if there's something in our lives or our hearts that we need to bring to God and let him deal with this morning, let's do so. For us to be most effective in his service, we need to know his full cleansing, you know, that we do wear his robe of righteousness that he gave to us. Another thing is that Satan is called the accuser, right? So sometimes we actually have dealt with everything that the Holy Spirit has put on our hearts, but there's still this nagging sense of condemnation. That accusation isn't from God when you have that. So rebuke it, rebuke the enemy, and remind yourself you belong to Jesus because of his sacrifice. It takes humility to have faith in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for every aspect of our lives. He wants our entire alignment to him so that we can most, be most effective for his service. So if there's anything you're holding back, his death is sufficient to take it and to forgive you. You need to let go of it so that you can fully lay hold of the life he has for you. <laughs> The second aspect of the crucifixion I want to briefly mention also relates to this issue of real clarity over what Jesus has done. It says in John 19 too, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. The Lord wore a crown of thorns piercing his brow. Imagine the crown of thorns roughly pushed on his head by the soldiers. The pain as the thorns dug into his head. The crown of thorns, which he didn't deserve in some manner, represents another aspect of the exchange. In wearing the crown, he exchanged our thinking for his thinking, our minds for his mind. It's interesting that immediately after talking about the crucifixion in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul goes on to mention, talk about the mind of Christ. One leads to the other. Mental clarity was purchased by Christ on the cross. He exchanged every brain-related issue, every brain injury for, for his thinking, his wisdom, his understanding, his clarity. That's part of the exchange. So, guys, bad feelings and accusations have to go. We've been saved from the stinking thinking, right? The last words Jesus spoke on the cross in John's Gospel were, it is finished. As Jesus died, he announced the reconciliation of mankind to God through his taking of the punishment, the judgment that all our sin deserved. And we could speak a whole sermon on that. It is finished. Paul expands it in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them by the cross. So far in this talk, we've, we, I've talked about the taking away of all our sins on the cross. And in the West, we do tend to focus on the individual rather than the corporate. But Jesus actually did far more than forgive us our sins when he was crucified. Paul asserts here that through being made a, a public spectacle in his, in his crucifixion, which indeed it, it was, Jesus actually defeated all the other powers of darkness in the whole universe and made a public spectacle of them. So now I want to think about um, what's Jesus saved us for? Amen. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, let's look at it again. So it, so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Yes, he, he says here twice that he came with no eloquence, no wise words, and no persuasion. In verse 2, he says he knew nothing except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He says his testimony about God was all about this. That is, he spoke about the crucifixion and its consequences. In verse 4, he talks of a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The two things are not separate. This was what happened when he gave the testimony about the crucifixion. The demonstration of the Spirit's power is a result of preaching Jesus crucified and risen. When we talk about our Saviour Jesus and his cross, we're focusing on this point where heaven was opened and humanity reconciled to God. And the Holy Spirit, he honours this. It was he who raised Jesus from the dead. And Colossians 2 says that God made us alive in Christ. So through Jesus' death, we received life. As we know, life does not begin when we die. It begins when we're born again, as, as the phrase suggests. Yeah. To think about what this life looks like, I just want to look briefly back to the cross as well. After Jesus' death, the soldiers had to check that Jesus was dead. John 19, 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. The cross of Christ tore through the separation between heaven and earth so that all God wanted to release to humanity was opened through his physical body. We know that Jesus was high up on the cross because it says that they attached a sponge to, to, to a branch of hyssop. Interestingly, hyssop was the same plant used to put blood on the door frames of the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. So I wonder if the soldier who rent Jesus' side was soaked in his blood and water that flowed out. The blood and water shows that Jesus had fully died. It's a picture of how blood separates after death. That's what, that was what actually happened. But it's also a picture of heaven's release to us, the blood, the flowing of God's redemption, the water, his Holy Spirit healing, and his river of life, which we now live in. Remember Jesus, you know, in John 7, who, who talks about those who believe would have the Holy Spirit as living water continually flowing from within us. This is what the cross has brought for each of us. We get to know the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts. He doesn't just move in our hearts. Because we're not just Gnostics for whom the spiritual is separate from the physical. He works in our whole lives, our physical situations. Yeah? This is why, you know, we, we should have expectation of upgrades. Yeah? In our actual physical lives. Different jobs. Different, you know, more... more um, 
more resources. You know, blessing on our families. You know, he works in our whole lives. I think we're coming at Commonwealth into a place of further breakthrough. Where each of us will increasingly see the signs of the gospel as we humble ourselves, pray, seek his face and turn from our ways. Mark 16, 17 to 18. These are the signs that Jesus himself said. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will get well. These things are the physical realities that Jesus mentions. Think about it when you're praying for healing or deliverance. You know, when, when you're praying, you're not praying to the ceiling, you know. Sometimes you can, you can think like that, but it's not a great place to be. We're calling down heaven to earth to see the spiritual manifested in the physical world. Yeah. So when we see things, healings that happen, it's not like physical to physical like a doctor. It's the spiritual coming into the physical, yeah? And um, as we pray for healing and deliver deliverance, I think it's really helpful to focus our hearts on the passion of Jesus and what he's done for us. Yeah. That's totally in line with scripture. 1 Peter 2, 24 obviously says, he personally carried our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. Mm. You have been healed. Yeah. yeah. When we pray for deliverance, we do so with the assurance that Jesus has already defeated Satan and all the hosts on the cross. The enemy cannot resist us when we come justified by the blood of Jesus. Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. We may have prayed for healing or deliverance for particular people or another situation to be shifted or moved and not seen them fully realized. All I can say is let's pray again. Bobby and I run a parents' prayer meeting in the school here. And uh, on a Tuesday morning, and I remember one time um, there was a parent who came to it, and we'd been praying for a, um, an injury that she had had. We prayed for it, and Bobby asked her the next week, like, how, how's, your, how, how's your arm or whatever it was? And the lady said, oh, it's 90% better, to which Bobby said, well, let's pray again then. Jesus didn't die 90% on the cross. Yeah. It's true. I just want to end with this. You know, if you talk to many Christians in this nation, you'll often find they have so somehow learnt to just put up with things rather than continuing to press into the Lord and see him move in power. You know, after Alice and I got back from Brazil in early July, um, I've had a lot of conversations with people about what happened there, what we saw. And it's really interesting because each one of these conversations highlights where the person is in their relationship with Jesus. You know, some people are like, wow, that's amazing that God does that. You know, I'd really want to see some of that. Others are like, oh, I'm a bit cynical about healing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's, um, and, and, and incidentally, you know, as we, got, as we got off the plane, I got a testimony from, from somebody in England who we'd prayed for about long COVID who had been healed. So, so it doesn't only happen in Brazil. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, she'd been told she'd never get rid of her cough. We prayed for her. About a month later, she went, I don't have a cough anymore. Maybe I was healed. <laughs> and then she remembered that, you know, that that was what we prayed for. So that was good. It takes humility to receive everything Jesus has for us. Yeah. 
not excusing ourselves. I used to go to a church where there are quite a few people who would talk about this idea of the now and the not yet. Have you heard that kind of theological idea? The idea is that, that when Jesus died, Satan was defeated, but that we still live in a fallen world, and therefore there are some things that we won't experience on earth. And there may be some small truth in this teaching, but it's unhelpful. Because as humans, particularly people in Britain, I think, <laughs> we quickly consign a lot to the not yet rather than the now. If we don't see Holy Spirit moving, we're, we're excused from praying again with this kind of theology. You know, so if you, if you, accompany, uh, you, know, if you encounter this theology, um, somebody talks to you about it, I would discard it and remind them of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. It's so important that we, we never shape our thinking by our present personal experience. Otherwise, we quickly create God in our own image. When we start to do this, to do this kind of sense-making, we could call it, of everything God's doing, we risk limiting him in our thinking. When God starts to move, the temptation is to kind of try and understand exactly what he's doing. But I don't think we should do that. We should just give him thanks for what he's doing. So let's not limit our thinking. Let's be available to the Lord. Let's come to him each day in humility to pray, to seek his face, to turn from our ways and to remind ourselves of the price that Jesus paid for us and the power of his Holy Spirit and rest in his promise that he will use us and he will come and heal our land. Amen. Amen. As I was preparing this, I also had a picture. I don't know if it, it is something that relates to anyone in particular, but it was of a drain cover, and it was like, you know, on the ground. And it was like somebody was lifting up the drain cover, and, that, and they'd hidden, somebody had hidden, it was like they'd hidden their passport or their identity documents under this drain cover in the ground. You know, our identity is not in a drain, <laughs> you know. It's not down there, kind of hidden in the ground, you know. Our identity is in Jesus, you know, and his resurrection power. So we need, to, we need to understand that our identity is hidden in Jesus, not hidden under a drain. The Lord takes our identity, you know, and he makes us sons of his. And he restores every single part of us in Jesus' name. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 